Hello, I'm Michael Hainsworth. 2020, the year of unprecedented times. As the COVID-19 vaccine injections begin, how has Canada handled the pandemic from a public policy perspective? The novel coronavirus wreaked havoc on Canada's long-term care facilities. Low-wage workers weren't as resilient as high-income earners. And partisan politics is coming back from the shadows as the second wave overtakes hospitals and the legislatures that oversee them. And with 2020 hindsight, we now know that jurisdictions which prioritized public health over the economy have seen lower infection rates and a greater economic recovery than those which tried to balance health and the economy. So did Canada get it right? I put that question to political gadfly and principal at the Gandalf group, David Hurley, and to the Institute's Bill Robson. I think Canada did a pretty good job. We had a balance to strike. Uh, and it's true that the more out of control the, pan the pandemic got, the more the spontaneous uh, actions of uh, uh, people reacting to it uh, did economic damage. Uh, at the same time, though, there always was a bit of a balance to strike. Uh, it was clear that we couldn't all be completely confined to our homes uh, for, for weeks or months uh, because the groceries wouldn't have been in the stores. I mean, all kinds of things that we were depending on wouldn't have happened. So there was always a balance to strike. And I think on the whole, our leaders did a good job. We had uh, public health imperatives and we had officials who were very forceful arguing uh, those things. At the same time, uh, we did need to keep the trucks moving. We did need to keep the food uh, the medical supplies, everything else that we depend on a functioning economy, uh, we needed to keep those things happening as well. And in addition, there was always the mitigation of some of the other uh, impacts, including health impacts of a shutdown economy as people are losing their jobs uh, and suffering from various types of problems, including mental health issues. So there was a balance to strike. And I think in Canada on the whole, when it comes to finding the right place to be on that trade-off, uh, we did a pretty good job. I think I agree with Bill largely, although I think it was better in the first wave than it was in the second wave. I think in the second wave, there was enough COVID fatigue in the population and enough COVID fatigue in the business community that governments started to try to dance with the virus a little bit more than they had in the first wave and allow more economic activity to go on. And I think that that ultimately caught up to us in a, in a pretty tough second wave. On balance, I think they got it right. Bill said something really important, and I think about it a lot, which is the difference between those people who've been able to transition to working at home and be safe and be serviced by the people who were not able to work from home. And so there's been a real different experience here between those of us who have the kind of jobs that we're able to do from home and stay safe and keep our families safe from those people who absolutely had to go out and work. And that's that's most people, and that's been a different experience for them. The, the low-wage work hasn't recovered as fast as the high-wage work. The, the, Canadian, the Canada Emergency Response Benefit was meant to help address this. Was CERB a failure? Uh, if I come in first on that, I'd say no, it was a success. Uh, in retrospect, it could have been handled a little bit differently, but uh, the government got it out uh, the door quite quickly. And uh, that's going to be a, a, a theme, I think, in this conversation, the degree to which governments have been able to execute on the things that they committed to do. It has been uneven. But in the case of the CERB and the wage subsidy when it came in was a little bit like this as well. It was very consciously uh, to get us to the other side of this valley. Uh, and uh, one of the things that I'm anxious uh, as we get into 2021 uh, to uh, uh, 
I guess, argue myself, and, and certainly I hope people will be picking up on this, is we're, we're hearing a lot of this, uh, you know, we, we mustn't go back to the way we were. We can't go back to the way we were. And when you look at the impacts on uh, lower income people, when you look at the disparate impacts of, of COVID on uh, parts of the population, I'd say if we can just get back to where we were a year ago, uh, that'd be a great first step because we've got some damage to make up. And I think it's appropriate when we think about the CERB, we think about the wage subsidy, some of the other measures have, have, that have been put in place to keep in mind that the original idea was we had a valley we needed to get across. And the, and the more we find ourselves on familiar ground, uh, I think the, the better off we will be in many ways. And that would be something to celebrate simply getting back to where we were. Yeah, I agree. I think CERB was probably the best thing this government did and maybe one of the best things any government did to cushion uh, the population from the economic damage of what was going on and to allow people the option to stay home and keep uh, and keep themselves and others safe. So I think CERB was a big success. If anything wasn't a success, Bill, maybe it was the wage subsidy initially. And maybe if the wage subsidy had been as generous as it was ultimately calculated when it was first brought out, we would have had fewer people on CERB. I know that the German government thinks it's tremendously important to maintain the connection between employees and employers and has gone to great lengths to do that. And that was largely broken in Canada because the initial wage subsidy was too small to get any pickup. And by the time it was revised, a lot of people had already been laid off. So that might have been that might have been the hiccup that's related to CERB, but CERB itself, I have no complaint about. If an end of year podcast uh, for the CD House, it isn't the right place to do a little bit of um, chest pounding. I don't know when is. Uh, we were in the forefront of those arguing that the wage subsidy should be more generous than what was originally put in place. Uh, and that was a, a tough call uh, because the generosity, I mean, David, you pointed out with respect to CERB, the generosity was quite important from the point of view of not just helping people survive the lockdown, but uh, reducing the incentive to do some unsafe things. And I think the wage subsidy coming in as big as it did uh, made sense. Uh, the difficulty going forward is that uh, we do need to wean ourselves off these things. Uh, they were intended to get us to the other side of the valley. And in fact, economically, we did see um, a surprising V-shape overall. I mean, not certainly sector by sector, uh, but we did actually have a very sharp rebound. Uh, and so that puts us in a, a different position going forward. Um, but uh, I'll just close on this by saying again, uh, the wage subsidy yeah, was a bit of a stutter start because initially they were going to do something that I think was going to be too small to move the needle. Uh, but with both it and CERB, they then did get it in place in amounts uh, that really, I think, did make a difference both to people's well-being if they did lose their jobs, but also forestalling some of the layoffs that otherwise might have occurred. Ontario pulled the plug on its basic income pilot prior to the pandemic and was widely criticized for it. Did COVID-19 reinforce the need for such a program and, and on a national level? <laughs> if, we, if we'd had one, we wouldn't have had to invent the SERP. If we'd had one, it would have been a pretty seamless transition to managing COVID. Bill talks about how we have to wean ourselves off this. But has the SERP set a new standard for what income support is? And is the new CERB Employment Insurance Program partially on the way and ultimately going to morph into some sort of basic income? Uh, I think there's a strong desire in the country uh, for that and uh, strong support for it, although some people do worry about the impact on, on work ethic. But generally, people think that this is the kind of support system that makes sense especially in a gig economy environment. I'm a skeptic about the universal basic income idea. And the reason that I 
have I am skeptical about it is because what it does is it says that income is the thing that we are going to use. I mean, ideally, and this is what what advocates would like often is income is the thing that we use. And so instead of targeting things in, uh, in all sorts of ways and having various transfers that overlap, but then also get clawed back in similar income ranges. So you get these welfare walls and these really peculiar patterns. It would be elegant if uh, you had sort of a constant rate of subsidy or, or marginal tax rate going right from the bottom of the income scale uh, all the way through to the top. The trouble is we provide lots of transfers uh, and services in kind to people who need them. Uh, education is an obvious one. I mean, you provide education free to people in fourth grade because nobody scams that system, right? You don't, the 35 year old people don't sit in a fourth grade classroom thinking, hi, I'm, I'm, I'm taking it out of the man here. Uh, similarly with healthcare, more to the point with this pandemic, uh, when somebody comes into an emergency room gushing blood, uh, we put everything we can into saving that person because there's no question whatsoever that they need it. And so the problem for me with the universal basic income idea was always how many of those other things that we use to target people are we seriously going to stop using? Because if it replaces a lot of other uh, income support programs and services, then you can maybe do it in an affordable way and with sensible tax rates and all the rest of it. But if you say we're we want to keep providing benefits to people on the basis of disability, family status, health status, age, all of those other markers that we've typically been using, then it's just not as elegant a solution and it's a lot more costly. So I think it's a very nice kind of direction to want to go in and, and, and sort of one of those points of the compass that you want to continually check, are we getting further away from it? Are we getting closer to it? But as an idea that it's going to replace a whole lot of other social programs, even before you get into the federal provincial angle, I just never thought it was that workable an idea. Meantime, the majority of deaths over COVID-19 in 2020 have been tied to long-term care facilities. What role should the federal government play in addressing the contrast between for-profit facilities and government-run operations? This event has stressed confederation. It has naturally led people, uh, as people always do when we've got issues of national importance, to look to the federal government to take the lead. Uh, but the federal government, notwithstanding uh, how adeptly it's handled a lot of the tax and income transfers, uh, the CRA, the Canada Revenue Agency, is one federal government uh, organization that seems to uh, work very well. Uh, but now, you know, at the federal level, they're looking at the military to deliver vaccines. I mean, the federal government just does not have... Uh, either the jurisdiction or the competence to get into many of these areas. So I am very leery about anything that the federal government might try and do in this area. At the provincial level, there is a lot of heavy lifting to do. And one of the things that I think we need to think more clearly about, and it's not just because of the pandemic, but the pandemic has accentuated it, is we've got very powerful and, and very convincing reasons to try and have more people aging in their communities, in their own homes, or in settings that are very different from what long-term care homes uh, uh, typically are. Uh, as these uh, as these efforts are successful, the population that's in long-term care homes are going to be increasingly people who need very intense medical attention and, and lots of other services as well. So there's a sense in which the model really is a bit broken uh, in Canada, uh, but that's really for the provinces to fix. I don't see that the federal government really has much uh, competence or jurisdiction in that area. Well, this has been a dirty secret for a long time in Canada. I, I do work for years with SEIU Healthcare, which represents personal support workers. And 
Anybody who knew what the condition was like in long-term care homes would not have been surprised uh, by the devastation that COVID has wreaked in those homes. Um, the living conditions are terrible. Living conditions are terrible. People don't get their diapers changed when they use them. They get them changed when they're full. People get $8 a day worth of food um, in those homes. It is a, a shocking situation, and they're understaffed, way understaffed. I don't blame this on provincial governments. I blame this on society. We haven't spent enough money on our elders. We haven't cared enough about them. And we've left them in these horrible circumstances. And this is something that's only going to get worse as the population ages and as we have more and more people retiring without adequate means to sustain themselves financially. Uh, employer pensions have disappeared and not been replaced by private savings. We're going to have a lot of old poor people. And they're going to be staying in these places. And they're going to be dying or living in horrible conditions unless we decide to do something about it. Now, that's not really a FedProv issue. Uh, and I agree with Bill. The feds can't in any way administer long-term care homes. I agree with what David has just said about the uh, exact the way that this is likely to get exacerbated. Um, and we now have more, increasingly the older population will not have uh, the children that today's uh, older population did to advocate for them. So, uh, yes, I'm 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 agreeing with uh, David. And in fact, since he mentioned retirement saving, I'll say that uh, there's been some fair, quite forward-looking uh, 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 attempts in in Quebec, which in some ways is ahead of the demographic curve, to think about ways in which we might treat. Uh, long-term care uh, and, and some of the things we need later in life, including pharmacare, more like a social insurance issue. And that means when you're working, when you're able to support yourself and set something aside, you have to, because we know that most of us are going to need that sort of thing at some stage in life. And it doesn't make sense to not have some vehicle for people to prepare for themselves uh, against what we know is coming. As you say, we're not blaming the provinces, we're blaming society, but partisan politics would certainly play a role uh, on an individual provincial level in how we address this. Wouldn't it be better to address it from a top-down approach to ensure that across the country, our seniors are getting the attention they need? I don't know. Long-term care homes did badly in Ontario under a new democratic government, under a progressive conservative government, under a liberal government, and now under a Ford conservative government. Um, there just have not been a priority for any political party, and they are in the spotlight now because of the fatalities that have occurred in them. And this is an opportunity for people to make real change in this sector. I'm not uh, adverse to national standards, especially if the federal government's putting money in. In fact, I could see that long-term care homes could fall under something like the Canada Health Act, in which there just had to be a minimum level of care um, uh, provided in order for uh, in order for financial transfers to flow. My reservation about that goes back to the question of competence and jurisdiction. The federal government uh, has been playing a role uh, in health care, as David mentions, through the Canada Health Act and the transfers there. Um, but health care is a bit of a continuum. Uh, and that's what the long-term care episode il illustrates to us. And different provinces, for for their own reasons, uh, good or bad, are going to be thinking about different ways of integrating long-term care into their hospital system, into other types of uh, healthcare delivery, including more of the remotely delivered services that we uh, now are, are learning more about what we can do uh, with the pandemic. And I think of this as a bit in the same category as drugs. 
Pharmacare is a very attractive idea, and I think that provinces in the years ahead are going to be looking at ways of integrating drug care much more closely with the other services that they provide. Uh, but the problem is, if Quebec decides to do it one way, British Columbia, another, uh, Alberta, Ontario, each in their own ways, um, they may have very good reasons to do that, and the federal government may end up coming in with a template that actually interferes with the ability of provinces to do some of the things that ultimately we wish they were able to do. So this it's a tough area, and often in tough areas, I, I like federations, I like federalism, because it means that you can try different things in, in different places and not make the same mistake from coast to coast. I'm going to end by going back to Michael's initial question and say that one thing I'm pretty convinced of is that there's not enough money in this system to allow for a profit margin. And I do not think that privately owned long-term care homes are uh, appropriate vehicles. The conversation through early 2020 focused on the idea that we have to realize this is first and primarily a health crisis and that conversations about the economic crisis and the fallout of the health crisis need to take a back uh, they need to be put on the back burner. At what point, now that we've got the vaccine arriving in Canada and we're starting to inoculate our frontline workers, at what point do we pivot to a conversation about the economic crisis as a result of the health crisis? Well, I think it's been going on almost from the beginning. When we had the lockdowns, uh, when we first start to learn about the existence of the coronavirus, uh, at the beginning of the year and then and then locked down from mid-March through the spring. Uh, part of what was driving that was that we did not know what we were dealing with. Uh, we didn't know a lot about the virus. We certainly didn't know how deadly it would be uh, in the general population, and we didn't know enough about how it was transmitted. I mean, early on, they closed the playgrounds, for example, because there was concern that you might be able to get it by touching, you know, kids touching swings. As we learned more, we were able to be more targeted in our response. Uh, David made a point early in the conversation, which I think is entirely right, that there's COVID fatigue. Uh, I think some of that was just inevitable because as we learned more, we discovered that some of the things that we were doing didn't make sense. But unfortunately, because we've never been able to get uh, proper contact tracing, uh, we, we, we don't have rapid testing in Canada, which to me is incomprehensible because in other jurisdictions, they're using it to good effect. Uh, but what's happened as a result is that we're going into lockdowns now that are uh, people across the political spectrum. This isn't just anti-maskers and libertarians who are protesting about it. Uh, we've got small businesses that are closed down when light goods are available uh, somewhere else. And there's no data uh, really to support that, that kind of activity. So I think the economic discussion makes a whole lot of sense. Uh, it's inevitable that you do have to trade uh, these things off. I don't quarrel with the premise that the severity of the illnesses are a key uh, uh, thing that goes into your, your eventual economic outcomes. Uh, but political leaders, policymakers, and we as individual citizens uh, have to manage a whole lot of priorities in our lives. And I think that uh, it just makes sense as we continue, because the vaccine is still a long way off for most of us, as we continue to uh, take these public health measures, uh, that we would naturally be thinking about how to trade them off against the survival of small businesses, uh, the eventual recovery of sectors that are still in trouble, like travel and hospitality. Uh, it's just a natural part of the conversation. There's nothing wrong with it. As usual, everything Bill said is right, but <laughs> two developments that are going to have an impact on this. One, we don't know, and that is what is our reaction to the inoculation of uh, elders, 
people in long-term care homes and uh, frontline emergency healthcare workers. Are we going to open back up when that is done, or are we going to wait until everybody's vaccinated until we open up? It's going to be really interesting for me to see how society reacts to the first wave of inoculations for elder people, which will largely eliminate death uh, from the equation and then makes it a different calculation about the disease. So there's a societal reaction there, government policy. I'm not clear how that's going to go. The second thing, of course, is the shakeup at the Department of Finance in Ottawa with the new minister uh, changing Bill Morneau for Christia Freeland and a new deputy minister with the arrival of Michael Sabia. Um, this is a government that, you know, critics would argue hasn't really been able to find the economy very much. And uh, others might argue it hasn't even looked for it very much. But I think this is a clear sign that they intend to put economic recovery front and center. Um, it may be unorthodox because Michael Sabia is talking about some interesting and big things. And Christia Freeland herself is an interesting and big thinker. So it may be unorthodox what comes out, but I'm expecting a lot more focus on the economy out of this government than we've had in the first five years. Michael, I'll, I'll come in and say I'm itching to get to the uh, economic topic and fiscal policy. Uh, there's one thing, though. I, I mean, David uh, sparked a thought in me, which is, uh, we are often in a mood to defer to the epidemiologists and the public health experts, as, as you naturally do in a pandemic. Uh, they would advise, uh, many of them, that the people who ought to be inoculated first are the people who are likeliest to spread the disease, and that would be young partiers. So uh, how would the population react to a program that prioritized them? <laughs> it's, it's, it's an easy slogan. And of course, there's a lot of logic to it. But I can guarantee that would go over very poorly. So then what should an economic focus look like? One of the things that we badly need, I think, uh, out of the federal government particularly, is a clearer roadmap than what we got in the fall economic statement. I'm actually appalled that there was never a federal budget this year. We uh, are seeing a lot of norms fall by the wayside and not just south of the border. Uh, we don't have a properly functioning parliament still uh, and the, and the failure to produce a budget uh, when even in the Second World War, federal governments produced budgets. To me, uh, it, it's a bit of a test of our system. It's a, it's a real test of uh, whether Canadians can kind of insist on some of these uh, basic benchmarks of accountability going forward. Uh, so I, I do want to see the federal government uh, put in place a fiscal framework that is more solid than what we have seen and at least uh, pays uh, more than just the most perfunctory lip service to the idea that we should have uh, a sustainable path for federal programs. A very nice point has been made uh, by Don Drummond, among others, uh, that if we decide that we are just going to have a permanently higher level of public debt going forward, then what we have said is, next generation, you can take care of this. We got the benefits of spending on the pandemic and you're going to pay the bill. And my objection to that is, the, that young people were already getting a pretty raw deal when you look at various transfer programs, you look at all the unfunded pensions in the public sector, uh, and now they've had their schooling interrupted. A lot of them have graduated into a very weak labor market, and we know that that does lasting damage. 
And the, we should not be just casually saying, oh, and on top of that, uh, you're now going to pay much higher taxes for a lower quality of public programs than you would have had otherwise. That is not fair, and we should not be going in that direction. And I'd like to see as a very important, if subtle backdrop to what the federal government does uh, going forward, that they acknowledge that that's not fair, that that's not responsible, and that part of their job is to get that debt burden down again. I'm not going to challenge you, Bill, because you're the expert here. You really are. But let me ask you a question. If the borrowing costs are so low now that a much higher debt-to-GDP ratio still yields lower borrowing costs, interest costs, than a lower debt, a smaller debt did 10 or 15 years ago, what is the problem with that? What is the problem with taking on debt if it's almost free? Well, um, if you get offered a very low uh, interest rate on your credit card, you might want to consume a little bit more in the present and save a little bit less. Uh, but the problem is that when you get to the future, you'll have saved less. And right now, the federal government is uh, borrowing an amount that's approximately equal to all of the business investment that takes place in the country in a normal year. Uh, and when you're converting that much saving into consumption in the middle of a recession, that's one thing because investment is low and there's lots of saving around. Uh, but if you continue to do that year in, year out, then there will be less housing, there will be less plant and equipment, there will be less machinery, uh, there will be less intellectual property products, the kind of investments that we're all now uh, discovering were, were so important uh, for us during the pandemic. So the, to me, the interest cost is important, but it's almost like a symptom of what you did in the past. The problem when governments are borrowing this much is that they are eating into national saving and they're cutting into their own ability to deliver uh, services in the future. I should just quickly add, because there's a lot of, I think sometimes it's quite deliberate confusion on this point. I'm not talking about borrowing to finance infrastructure. When you're borrowing to finance infrastructure, you're creating a capital asset. So you're actually adding to the nation's wealth and the nation's ability to live well in the future. But if you just continue to borrow for the sake of consumption, then you're going to have a weaker economy going forward with which to support those interest payments. So is childcare investment infrastructure or consumption? If it's leaving the children better off than they would have been otherwise, then it's it's uh, that's an investment. People often talk about it for the sake of stimulating the economy, helping to parents, helping parents to work, there's a sense in which that might produce an, an ongoing uh, increase, say, in economic growth rates. But sometimes I think that might be um, one of those one-time things. Yes, it can be helpful, but we shouldn't think of it as necessarily something that's going to lead a lasting benefit. The real question is, uh, is are, are the kids better off than they would have been otherwise? And the answer to that's complicated because for some kids, the answer is yes. For the others, the answer is no. It's difficult to have that conversation. David, what's your best advice to the PMO moving into 2021? Have an early election. I say that flippantly, but I, I believe that politics for all incumbent governments is going to get very difficult for the reasons that Bill is talking. As governments have to withdraw from the economy, the support that they've been providing, we're going to leave behind still hundreds of thousands of unemployed people that had jobs before COVID. And uh, we're going to leave uh, behind... Uh, significant uh, economic difficulty that has been masked and will be less masked. And maybe some in some sectors enduring, and maybe in some regions of the country enduring. So I think we're headed into a difficult period of politics. Um, and I think for the government, um, they're much better off fighting an election on 
uh, how who's best to manage COVID because they seem to have done a good job at that, uh, then they might be on a who's best to rebuild the economy um, because that's been less sure ground uh, for them. Uh, and, and it will be difficult to sell people on economic recovery anyway. Having said all that, whenever the election comes, they need to, I think as Bill said earlier, start putting economic recovery and a new economic vision for the country uh, in the window. And I think they need to be seen as the people who are going to lead us out of this, not just having gotten it through us. I'm always, I'm, I'm always taken by the Winston Churchill example of somebody that wins the Second World War and then loses the next election. Not because people weren't grateful that he didn't win the Second World War, but because they didn't think he was the right person for the next stage um, of the country. And so that's that's always something governments need to think about is where's this thing going next and what do people need me to be next? Uh, I'm not uh, as competent to offer political advice as David is, um, but I would go back to a period that he uh, is very familiar with. Uh, and uh, that was when Paul Martin and Jean Chrétien went through a previous round of fiscal consolidation. Uh, it can't have been much fun for them at the time, but what struck me about that period was, uh, firstly, that they communicated their goal uh, very clearly, got a significant amount of public buy-in. That might not be there today, but I think in the future uh, that's available as well. Um, and, they, and the economy uh, did quite well through that period. Uh, there is a bit of a tendency to assume that every dollar that the government puts in is going to be a good thing, you know, sort of add a dollar to GDP. And of course, that's a good thing. Uh, if they take a dollar out, that's going to take a dollar out of GDP. And that's a bad thing. Uh, it's a lot more complicated than that, especially when you're looking over periods of years rather than sort of week to week and month to month. Uh, it was a very successful period. And a lot of good things came out of it. I think that it caused the federal government to prioritize better, uh, focusing harder on the things that it was good at and getting uh, itself less enmeshed in things that it wasn't particularly good at. Uh, the federation actually came out of it in, in, in much better shape in many respects than you might think. Uh, it's not necessarily true that higher federal transfer payments are a recipe for peace across the land. Uh, and it made a, it made a durable difference. Uh, so uh, to me, as I said, I would like to see that fiscal framework. It's a shame now that we do not have as close communication uh, between the federal government and the business community as we once did. I think that that was something that Paul Martin and Jean Chrétien had uh, to a greater extent than is currently the case. Uh, but we've just seen an industry strategy council. I mean, there have been various attempts to reach out by the government and business people have responded. Uh, so uh, if, if that communication is continuing, then this path to a more sustainable fiscal position and an economy that's growing organically as the pandemic comes under control, that's going to be a lot easier to do. Yeah, Bill, I wish back in 1995 somebody had explained modern monetary theory to us. <laughs> <laughs> and if you had bought it and tried it, then uh, we would still be battling our way out of that mess. <laughs> Bill Robson is the president and CEO of the C.D. Howe Institute. David Hurley is the founder of crisis communications firm, The Gandalf Group. Join us in 2021 as a physically distant C.D. Howe discusses COVID-19 and healthcare's digital revolution. That webinar is January 13th. On the 26th of January, the president and CEO of the Alberta Energy Regulator will offer his insight into the way forward for his province 
and on the 27th, Peter Rutledge of the CDIC on the future of finance. I'm Michael Hainsworth. From all of us at the C.D. Howe Institute, to you and yours, we wish you a safe and healthy holiday season. You've been listening to the C.D. Howe Institute podcast with Michael Hainsworth. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. The C.D. Howe Institute is an independent, not-for-profit research institute whose mission is to raise living standards by fostering economically sound public policies. The Institute is widely considered to be Canada's most influential think tank and a trusted source of essential policy intelligence, distinguished by nonpartisan, evidence-based research and subject to definitive expert review. Visit cdhow.org and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you.